Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. Hello, and welcome it's to another week's voice. edition of Keep Together, together to focusing on and union civil rights, and social environmental sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national, and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. This is Valita the Helm here. Jacob's yet to arrive. It's a cold morning. Um, hope you're nice and cozy in bed, or if you're traveling to work, I hope you're enjoying the radio so far. Um, this week, of course, it's been a very busy week, so we shall go through the news in a minute. But first, I'd like to pay my respects to the uh, traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and say that the, the land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Okay, so let's look at what's happening. Um, we had a refugee march and of course the camps have to close and we are not making great progress there. Uh, Dutton's and uh, or trying to get more power for himself so he can decide um, just about every minute uh, space there is to be divided about refugees, migrants and so on citizenship, you name it he wants a dictatorial um, ability to decide who should stay and who should go and um, we shall see where the battle takes us and I'm sure the people united uh, will fight that um, churches have banded together and the refugee battle is on and we are hoping to turn the tide and thousands of people gathered um, last Saturday to, was it Saturday, Tuesday? They um, certainly showed the government that they were not happy with the refugee policy. Okay, to what's trending, and we heard about Greenfell in London, and that, that saga continues, seems to be dominating the news. And we also have, of course, Trump who's gone to the background after many weeks, um, the, the fallout of the battle between Comey and Trump continues and umming and eyeing and a lot of um, toing and froing about who said what and when and whether there was tapes and no tapes, really news that's not that relevant to the people's issues that are important. Okay, let's look at what's um in Green Earth Weekly, the cover is, of course, about the refugees and to sh- close the camps and bring them back to Australia and process them properly and quickly for a much cheaper uh, cost, really. And the 70 million paid out uh, for many people, that's not going to be a huge amount because it's going to be shared among many uh, refugees. And the treatment they've received and the treatment they are going to have to receive will cost a lot more than what they're going to get out of that, what seems to be a large amount. When you divide it and you pay for the treatment, it's not much at all. And yet the future is still undetermined. Um, so let's have a look. Now there's, there's news here written by Kerry Smith about the state hall to 
drill for oil in Great Australian Bight, and this is of course going on to the environmental stuff and the energy stuff. What we have is a Norwegian oil and gas company. Um, State Oil has taken over two exploration permits from BP and plans to begin drilling for oil in the Great Australian Bight by last ne- by the late of next year. So it looks like more pollution in the seas and, des- and destroying of um, all the sea creatures that we fight to protect, and God knows how many spills we're going to get out of that. Now, Statoil now joins oil companies Chevron, Santos, Murphy, and Kroon in planning to drill in the bite. BP announced in October it had abandoned the plan to explore for oil in the Great Australian Bite, saying that the project was not economically viable. But um, they're saying that we will now take the necessary time to systematically work through all the preparations needed to drill safely. Um, of course, Statoil's making that statement. So we know that there are different views on, on um, this issue, and we um, this is Statoil. They are, they are still apparently listening and learning and it seems doesn't seem to, to dawn on them that this destruction of environment is furthering um, the problems we have in terms of environmental damage to the seas around Australia anyway the um, the good thing is one positive um, uh, response has been from the Green Senator uh, Sarah Hanson Young who is also against the drilling in bite uh, says this is an opportunity to make sure we put to bed the idea of oil drilling in the Great Australian Bight. The Wilderness Society, of course, or Wilderness Society of South Australia, um, the director of that, Peter Owen, said oil and gas exploration should never have been allowed in the region and called, in, called on the state government to refuse to grant the change to lease conditions and work program requirements. So that battle will be followed through, and we shall see what happens. Okay, on to the um, another news. There's a snippet about um, Turnbull uh, imitating Trump, and I'm sure you've seen that all over the news, and I wouldn't go through that. But let's look at a bit more um, serious stuff. Um, there's news that Ukraine is to buy uranium uh, so in a statement to the Senate on 13th of June, the federal government confirmed that it will sell uranium to Ukraine despite the significant safety and security concerns raised by the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties. So that's really interesting because the history of Chernobyl is not too far away and um, the impact has been not very good, as we all know. So in February, uh, the... The Joint Standing Committee on uh, Treaties investigation found that the existing safeguards were not sufficient and there was a risk Australian nuclear farm, nuclear material and would disappear in the Ukraine. The government has ignored the recommendations on risk assessment and recovery of nuclear materials and is looking to complete the deal despite the risks of the war. So for those who are interested in... um, Uranium deals, that's something for, to, to be followed through. But the problem is the, all the shenanigans and noise they make about, uh, uranium, nuclear, and so on seems to go by the board when it involves 
money. So if you're exporting, it's all good for the rich. Never mind the safety issues. Now the environmental issue is logging. So it's, this is about the western uh, forest in Victoria. Victoria's new timber utilization plan of 2017 for Western Victoria shows logging will target areas known to contain high numbers of threatened species, including the iconic red-tailed back um, cockatoo and large areas of endangered vulnerable or depleted native vegetation types. Much of the timber to be harvested is now is, is for low-value users, including commercial firewood, plates, posts, and some saw logs. More than 30 threatened native animals and plants uh, have been found in or closely adjacent to the uh, proposed logging areas, indicating that the ecological importance as primary habitat, which would which should rule out any further logging. But of course, that is not going to stop the money makers and the government that supports the rich, as we know. Okay, let's move on to other news. Sorry. Um, what we have here, 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven workers have been compensated, and of course this is something you don't really uh, hear in the news. So compensation was paid to 7-Eleven workers by 7-Eleven's head office, and they have so far reached $110 million, an average of 39000 for each of the 2,832 claims by workers who were underpaid by franchisees. So the payout is much greater than fines that could be imposed under existing laws, raising questions about whether the federal government proposed law is law protects vulnerable workers, and does it go far enough, and you know, and remains a deterrent to avoid such future um, abuses, so to speak. Really, the Fair Work Act merely imposes fines and very limited compensations, and we know all about that. Companies never never have to pay large amounts in um, fines because they are the upper echelons of society, aren't they? And purported to create jobs, and boy, what kind of jobs do they create? Okay, moving on. Carter Holt Harvey, workers vote on ABA. So production and maintenance workers at the Carter Holt Harvey Myrtleford site who have been locked out for by management, as we know, we interviewed um, the the CFME organizer from there, um, and they've been locked out for more than nine weeks, eight to nine weeks, I think. So they have um, got a proposal. They let's have a look. So on June eight and nine, um, they have they rejected the company's proposal for a new enterprise bargaining. Um, Agreement. The result of, of the secret bar demonstrated that the company's proposals are totally unacceptable. The workers want a proper holiday over Christmas, um, a decent income uh, protection, uh, in insurance cover, and the wage rise that reflects the uh, contribution to making Carter Holt Harvey a highly profitable business. And this company is owned by, owned by a New Zealand um, person, I forget his name, I think um, they mentioned it in the last interview we had and the money of course is repatriated, all profits, and um, they certainly are not short of cash to be able to meet the small request the workers want, which is probably over Christmas, which just seems common sense and uh, proper 
insurance when they're injured and income protection to help the families when the workers do get um, ill or injured. Right. Let's move on to one more news before we go to a break. Um, knitting nanas. So we've got an article here by Carrie Smith from Wollongong. Uh, they are chants and clicking knitting needles on the 9th of June where the Illawarra Knitting Nanas Against Gas and Wollongong Climate Action Network joined concerned community members for a large, loud and long lunchtime rally outside the Commonwealth Bank in Wollongong. So they're chanting, don't wreck the reef, don't wreck climate and don't fun Adani. So the Nanas are out campaigning against Adani and if you want to read the full article, of course you can find it in Green Life Weekly. And logging is another issue. There's a lot of climate and environment issues in this um, issue. Uh, logging changes will kill vulnerable species. So we have a proposal here in New South Wales um, on public land that will be converted much to the north uh, coast public forests into quasi-plantations. Reduce buffers on vital, reducing buffers on vital headwater stream. The proposed changes remove the need to look for and protect most threatened plants and animals. Only 14 animal species and populations are to retain their current protection. 23 will have their protection removed and 26 will have their protection significantly reduced so that the logging companies can march in and log all forests. So this is um, another big issue that is um, yet to be fought out, and this time in New South Wales. It is astounding that the EPA can actually condone this move. Um, So the battles um, started to rage there as well. So, again, more details in the newspaper if you want to get it. And also, of course, um, if you want to join the campaign, there are various campaigns available on the net. Okay, let's have a quick community announcement and continue the program. you got to remember, Nanoc's a special day for us, brothers. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black NAIDOC means a lot to me, it's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Name is Selva Cooler Children and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorized even more? 
Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being and welcome back to the program. I did uh, forget to mention that we have a couple of interviews lined up for this program. And the first person to be interviewed here is Dr. Andrea Bunting. Um, so let's go to Andrea. Morning, Andrea. Good morning, Lali. <laughs> this is a very cold morning, but we have a cold topic to discuss. This is a Finkel report. Yes, that's correct. Yes, and you've done some very detailed research into this. And I have to say to listeners that Andrea is a doctor, and you're an engineer, aren't you? Um, engineer, I was, yes. I uh, uh, taught sustainable energy and have um, researched wind power. Yes, and um, Andrea also has enormous experience in the and fighting in the environmental um, sector and a very active person in this area. So, Andrea, tell us about this Finkel report because it's such a long report and I don't think anybody has had a chance to completely um, read the report. We're just going on comments made by the mainstream media. So what is your take on it, Andrea? Well, of course, the mainstream media has been focusing on one aspect of it, which is the clean energy target. But, of course, the... The main point of the Finkel review and the, the main reason it was commissioned was, uh, was to investigate uh, why the um, national electricity market was really not working anymore um, in terms of, uh, firstly, the, uh, the, the blackout in South Australia last September um, was really due to... That was an event that had been predicted long predicted and South Australia was quite vulnerable because of the way that the market was being operated. Um, the market operator was constrained by, you know, rules that hadn't kept with the times, um, with the changing technology. And so it was, that was sort of a, a, uh, it was a, a system collapse that was almost waiting to happen. And so that, that was really what prompted the review, but also, of course, you know, they've been concerned that, the, you know, the predicted blackouts, a lot of closures, no new, you know, the, um, the, so the, the, the system has become quite vulnerable. And, of course, uh, electricity prices have skyrocketed. And on top of that, of course, you know, the uh, sector needs to reduce its emissions. So what it does is, or slash its emissions quite dramatically. Um, what it talks about is the energy trilemma, which is how do we <laughs> That's simultaneously... That's a new word. <laughs> yeah, it's a very useful thing. How do we simultaneously keep the lights on, which is, means both stopping a system collapse and ensuring that there is enough power when people need it? How do you keep electricity affordable 
and how do you reduce emissions? Now, everybody focuses on different things. Of course, the climate movement focuses on the emission reduction and doesn't think about the other two very much. Um, politicians, of course, have, you know, if the lights go out, that's a disaster for them and rising prices, there's a lot of pressure put on them. So they're, they're responding to those two and emissions is sort of given, you know, a back seat. Um, they just mentioned it in passing. Um, so, you know, Finkel was talking about how do you simultaneously um, do those three. And he has, reject, he has suggested, you know, there's been 50 recommendations. 49 of them have been accepted by the government and they're generally very good because basically they're changing the rules of the market so that it actually functions. But more importantly, they've actually made, you know, made it accountable. I mean, at the moment, there's so many different bodies and nobody's fully responsible. So when there is, a, when there is some disaster, um, who, everyone points their finger, you know, it's, oh, no, it's the federal government, no, it's the state government, no, it's the market operator, no, it's the private generators, and so on, and there's finger pointing. So you suggested one body be set up that's actually accountable and it monitors uh, how the market is going. Um, so that's good. Of course, you know, my concern is whether the market can actually be fixed at all. Fundamental question, should, yes. Whether we should actually be having competition and private, private ownership at all. Mm. I mean, it's not just people focus on privatisation, which has been, of course, a disaster, but it's also the competition, you know, the fact that they're competing, and this has led to some very strange outcomes. Um, and at the moment, it's leading to the fact that they're not getting new generators apart from renewables that they're not the variable renewables which you know um solar and wind but then and they're not getting the storage in and they're not getting fossil fuel generate generators in particular coal and uh, not coal sorry <laughs> gas the federal government wants <laughs> Oops, that's a Freudian. they're not getting gas new gas because there's an investment strike um and that's because there's this uncertainty around whether they're going to have prices, uh, price on carbon. I mean, business knows it's coming. So they're waiting. And, of course, the prices are so volatile at the moment. So, and, you know, there's this... There's, so there's a whole lot of uncertainty. And the, the clean energy target or some, some sort of carbon mechanism, carbon pricing mechanism, is meant to give certainty. So that's why, um, you know, that, that is really some key plank of it. Um, so sorry. So there, there is um, the, the the crux of it is that the model that Finkel presented continues to be a market mechanism, which is a no-no in general um, perspective on most people in the environment movement. They would prefer something a bit more concrete and not governed by uh, private enterprise, as you say. Uh, for them, a uh, profit is a primary motive, not anything to do with um, reducing emissions or using renewables. And there's always this, this, there's a lot of confusion about the language used as well between renewables and, um, you know, uh, emission trading and um, reduction of emissions. All these gets in the mix and people get very confused about this. So what do you think the Finkel Report is focusing on primarily is reducing emissions or is the focus on using more renewables um, and reduce the use of coal? 
Well, it's it's taken that uh, starting point that uh, this uh, sector's got to reduce emissions by what the Par- what the government has agreed to for the Paris uh, a Paris agreement, agreement uh, yep. 28% by 2030. And now they've been criticised. Uh, Fingal report review has been criticised by some climate. Some in the climate movement because they say the electricity sector needs to do more than that needs to do the heavy lifting because it's easier to do, reduce it there. Now, you know, Finkel has said yes. Well, perhaps that he mentioned that you know perhaps it could do more. On the other hand, you do want to start decarbonising transport. He said, and yes. really that can be quite easy. Yeah. And agriculture and other sorts of other sources of emissions because. Electricity is about a third. But, but look, just another thing. I mean, they're trying to desperately to save the market. Yes. <laughs> and, and what's been happening this year has been really interesting. Um, and, again, pe- very few people have focused on this, but they're getting in a bit of a panic now because governments are intervening. Now, when once governments start intervening in a market, then the private companies get... Mm, they get very upset because that's going to undermine their profits. Of course. We've had a whole series of announcements in the last few months about that. And you, uh, so we had, you know, South Australia, the government said they will intervene, they'll build a big battery, which will help them a lot, and they'll build a gas plant. Then uh, Malcolm Turnbull said, oh, we'll build Snowy Hydro 2.0, which will be a pumped hydro storage, again, very useful. Um, and then they're saying, oh, we're going to intervene, possibly build a coal fire power station, which, of course, have, they've got rocks in their heads, but <laughs> with that one. But they're also saying we may go out for tender on a power station and be it what, you know, whatever. But they're intervening. And, of course, the um, private sector is very upset about that because, it, it you know, it uh, undermines them. Um, but it, for people who are interested in, in the whole issue about, about privatisation and, and concern about privatisation and competition, this is actually a really interesting thing that's happening. Um, so we, it's a sort of wait and see moment because, what, you know, they just so desperately want to save this market, but it's not functioning. Um, they've adopted most, as I said, most of the recommendations of Finkel, which will, will fix up a lot of the real main problems, um, that, you know, uh, in terms of how it operated, but it, it may not. The thing that they're ma- really concerned is they won't get new investment by the private sector in, um, in non-renewable energy. In, now, We've still got a renewable energy target, which is building new solar and wind, which is great. But of course, we do need storage now to go with it, and other, you know, other sorts of resilient services I talked about in the in the article. Um, but and we do need a lot more of that. But we need, you know, we either need we do need an extended renewable energy target uh, because it finishes in three years' time. Mm. So we so- need something to promote more renewable energy too. And the clean energy target would probably allow uh, get a lot of renewables going. Mm. So it is a fi- would be a fixed target, but if, but other things would would be eligible, particularly of course gas. Oh. Um, so if that that, that that too is, is a bit of a mix. It complicates the whole issues. But what is the Labour Party talking about 
the coal um, as part of the Finkel report, investment in coal or subsidy to the coal industry? Well, now, the Finkel review said that uh, with this clean energy target, any, any generator that generates under a certain, you know, um, certain, uh, release of certain amount of emissions under a certain amount uh, could be eligible. And you'd be eligible for a part of the, the credit. You know, it'd be a certificate-based thing like the renewable energy mm, target. No, certificate. Yeah. But instead of getting a full certificate, so renewables would get the full certificate, gas would get part because they have, you know, part, some emissions. And um, this sort of, uh, you know, the cut-off points, the, um, the, the coalition want the cut-off points so that you get in this um, some sort of high efficiency, low emissions coal, which is, you know, that sort of ultra-supercritical stuff. But the thing is, there's two things. Firstly, this... Oh, this is very expensive. Oh, sorry, another thing I forgot. Carbon capture and storage. Coal with carbon capture and storage would have low enough emissions to get to be eligible. But again, that is so expensive that uh, it's not likely to be built. Um, so that you know, that's really not going to happen. If this high efficiency, low emissions um, coal is included in the benchmark, then it would get so little a credit in the certificate the system that it probably won't make a difference and it's expensive. So uh, it's not really, you know, it's clear. I mean, I think it's more symbolic. Mm. Um, I actually don't think it will help coal. Um, what will help coal is if governments decide to invest in it. Um, but coal, I think, is in trouble for other reasons. Um, so I think the only way we're going to get new coal is 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 through government intervention. Mm. So <laughs> but on the other hand, they they're also intervening for massive storage. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. sword. And also, uh, there's a story of the gas, which is another big issue where uh, Turnbull's now stated that oh, you know, you have to meet the local market needs before you export, or they're going to mm. intervene anyway. So that makes it it's interesting as well. So it changes the whole price. Prices as well, the relative prices, it will make it easier for gas to get up. Gas mm. to up right? So give us a, a sort of a, a summary of what you think of the recommendations in Finkel report. Is it a good thing that the government adopts it or uh, do you find the criticisms made by the climate um, organisations and even the Labour Party or Greens um, valid? Uh, look, I think uh, the climate movement, Labour and the Greens, have really underplayed this thing about keeping the lights on. Um, and so they, they just don't talk about how important it is. If we don't, if there, if there are power blackouts, power shortages, and the prices keep skyrocketing, we won't bring people along with us on the journey to emissions, re, you know, in reduction. And, you know, people are still, still not telling the truth about why the September blackouts occurred. There's this sort of denial going on because it actually was something that was predicted and it was due to how the market had developed. You know, the um, market operator made it quite clear that the whole system should have survived those the loss of those transmission lines. It wasn't inevitable that the system collapsed. And yet everyone else is saying, no, it's solely due to the storms. No, that was due to... That, would, that was... 
would have led to a partial black, blackout, but not a system collapse. So, so what you know, there, there's this sort of element of denial going in that on that uh, the system, you know, the, the system has actually become less stable. Um, so, so people are, they're not talking about that, and therefore they're not focusing on that. Hmm. Uh, they only focus on the emissions. So you've got to see all three. Um, you know, so I've been trying to convince the climate movement for so long that you've got to take this seriously, the whole security thing, um, keeping the lights on, you know. Um, yeah. And but but I feel that they're not. So so, so a lot of their criticisms have been in the context of only one leg of that trilemma. The you know the um, have been about emissions reduction rather than but also the keeping the lights on and affordability. And so, of course, you know, you, as I said, you've got to, you've got to be bringing people along with you because people are actually very concerned about about affordability, of course. And if you're in South Australia, it's really unfair on the, to people in South Australia that their system should be so vulnerable because it is, and mm. it's been predicted, mm. long known that the, so. So uh, I, I don't really agree with, with a lot of what the climate movement has said because of their single-minded focus on one aspect. Rather than trying to see how do we simultaneously do the whole three things, um, so, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping it affordable and slashing emissions, and putting forward ideas that, that uh, meet those whole three. This is what we should be focusing on, things that actually do the, all three of them. And that is really around energy efficiency, I think, about how, you know, and shifting demand, but particularly energy efficiency. And there may be also how we fund electricity, um, and it may also be about ditching the market. So, so there are much bigger, bigger ideas there that they're not focusing on. So, yeah, very I, I complex have, issue, isn't it? Is, it? Is, it is, yeah, it is. you can't sort of do justice within the 10, 15 minutes we've, we've talked about it. But we shall keep an eye on the ball. And thank you so much for being available so early in the morning, Andrea, or Dr. Andrea Bunting. Um, we shall keep this conversation going. Certainly, I'll be writing another article, don't worry. Yes, it'll be in Green Life Weekly for those who are interested to read it. And thanks again. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Yeah. And uh, Jacob, good morning. Something yeah. delayed you, dear? Oh, uh, um, <clears throat> it's just um, riding down the Merry Creek. Uh, it was my first time riding all the way from home to Fitzroy, and um, it said it would take 30 minutes, but it actually took more like 55 minutes. Oh. Um, and there was all these delays, especially since riding down that creek in the dark is bike path in the park, um, in the dark is actually. Quite it's dangerous, dangerous yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's very undulating. I've, yeah. I've driven that, uh, ridden that path before. It's quite dangerous. Mm. So you need to keep to the main roads. Mm. Well, it, dep- it depends. Oh, St. George's is the best, straight down. Well, I, d- I did say I did, you went through St. George's after um, yeah, during Premier. You should listen to the, the bike program that, that tells you. And uh, they also have, um, you know, uh, the council puts out, Information on the safe um, bicycle paths as well. But mm. anyway, and the, tra- the train line is also good. If you follow through the train line, they've got mm. a reasonably safe um, mm. uh, bike. Anyway, I'm glad you're here, but when you're going to leave soon as well. I'll leave at 7.55, so we have okay. um, some time, so some news. You want to, so yeah, I've been sort of going through some of the news that has um, appeared in the paper. So do you have anything in particular you want to talk about? Um, okay, just quick. Um, okay, hang on. Before you do that... Let me just play a quick um, uh, break. Yeah.
Are you wondering how to pay your donation? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or FTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. And, uh, of course, listeners, the Radiothon is still going. It goes on for two weeks. And we, if you like the program, if you like what you're hearing, if you like that interview with um, Dr. Andrea Bunting, please think about donating. And uh, as the announcement said, you can pay in multiple ways, and anything over $2 is tax deductible. And the phone number to ring is 03, of course, 94198377. Or you can go to the web, and it is 3cr.org.au slash donate. So if you want to keep an alternative voice on air, please donate generously because this happens only once a year and every cent of your donation helps towards keeping alive an alternative source of information um, and if, if you're donating this program please say so it's good to let people know which program you're donating to because every program has a quota and to keep us on air we'd be grateful if you could donate to the um, Green Left Weekly Radio or Friday Breakfast, either one. Um, and thank you for supporting us over the last couple of years, and I hope you'll continue to support us. Sorry, Jacob, keep going. Okay, so I'll just um, share some news from the international... Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Yep, so I'll be sharing some news from the International Front. Um, we have an article here in the latest Green Left Weekly on um, the French uh, elections um, by Lisbeth Leifen. Um Basically, um, the first round of the France's National Assembly elections has been basically marked by record abstention of 51.21% of the electorate. Oh, I thought it was 42, so it's 51. Okay. Yeah. So for my, um, just for um, listeners' information, the, the assembly Assembly elections are basically kind of like similar to basically what we um, were discussing in the past several weeks beforehand was the presidential elections where I know it's very the confusing the way they um, the these are the legislative elections so, so the president's election was separate um, from this the is where kind of like you know the, the, elect- the administrators yeah. and the MPs kind of all get elected so mm. um, but um, Elizabeth writes here that this um, abstention main primarily impacted on the far right and left parties um, while um, among the results of this election, and as the headline says, um, the President Emmanuel Macron um, wins a majority because of this, uh, in light of this record abstention. And of course he... <coughs> yeah, she used that as a, as a weapon against his win, didn't she? She used it quite viciously. She said, oh, well, given the, that only 40, 
48 or 49 point whatever percent voted, it shows that he's not as popular as people may think. Hmm. Yeah, and um, I think um, I guess one of the more interesting things is the left results. Um, on the left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's France unbowed um, um, with the acronym FI received 11.0% of the vote and 65 of its candidates have qualified for the second round. So there's actually, just like the French president elections, there's going to be a second round of this. Um, the vote for the traditional social democratic parties, the PS and its allies, fell dramatically from 2012, although it was up for its record low in the presidential elections. They won 9.51% of the vote, and they expected to win 20 to 30 seats. Um, this is down dramatically from the 331 seats they hold in the ongoing, outgoing parliament, with a large number of former government ministers already eliminated in the second round. Um, the so, French so hang on, do you know how it works? It goes first round and second round. So we have another election to go? Yes, there's another. So you know how the president election had two rounds? Oh, yeah. um, basically, all the different kind of competing parties or have to secure a certain amount of vote. Yep. And then in the second, basically, it's like a process of elimination. Once in the second round, say, for example... Ah, say for go, example yeah, yeah, I say, remember that one. Yeah. yeah, say, for example, in Australian elections, you had the ALP, the Greens... One Nation and a bunch of other minor parties. Basically, Labor and Greens could win a certain amount of vote. That would qualify them in the second round. And, the and therefore, the rest would be eliminated. So yeah. people would only be able to vote for so Labor. So how does that work for the legislation, though? Legislative positions? I don't know, but that's literally... But that's the process that goes that, on for this... Yeah, it goes for okay. a second round. Um, just very similar to the... Um, um, so round. basically, one of the things with um, the French Communist Party um, is had been heavily dependent on a left electoral, front electoral lines with um, Mélenchon's left party. Um, but of course, there was no kind of um, such alliance this time around. So they only received 2.72% of the vote. So they've, as a result, only 12 um, candidates have qualified for the second round. Um, of course... Um, one of the one of the reasons um, for this is basically there was a kind of like you know this struggle for left unity. Um, Melanchon, you know, for all his you know the great things about his program, I would argue, you know, based on what I'm reading here, is quite bureaucratic. Um, his process of you know left having forming a left alliance was basically to get all the other left parties to basically agree a hundred percent with um, with their program. Um, so basically, their basis of uni was basically having all the candidates under, um, under the the uh, of you know accepting its program and its banner with all f- public funding based on votes going to the FI, um, and of course you know it led the division basically led to some communist party members actually running for Mélenchon's party and so on. So a weird combination. Isn't um, it? and of course, um, but there so. But I guess that's that's kind of like really, you know, the state of the left. Um, you know, it's a bit of a shame because I think the French left does actually have a lot of potential, especially in how Mélenchon's campaign mobilised, you know, thousands of people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, concluding here, as important that there's, the, there's going to be a second round. Um, I think the second round actually has happened already, so we should hear a report on it quite soon. Um, but basically, um, 
the reality will be the main struggle on the streets against the attacks on the social grains that will um, occur as a result of the Macron government. And, of course, there's um, the Front Social, established in April, including more than 100 unions and other activist groups, has called national mobilisations against Macron for June 19th. Unions in Paris have also called protests for June 27th, the day that um, newly elected MPs will take their seats as part of their campaign against the attacks on labour laws. These mobilisations will be an important step in building a movement against Macron um, because, yeah, one of the things with French politics is Macron, under um, when he was a minister in um, the Socialist Party, basically implemented all these kind of repressive labour laws yes. that led to these all these mass kind of protests That's and unrest. Right. Yeah, he's no angel, that's for sure. Um, do you want to keep on the international news front, or do you? Uh, oh, I can quickly um, just give a bit of an uh, a quick two to three minute update um, on British politics. Um, yes, I mentioned it initially because um, of the Grenfell thing and yep. uh, all the fall fallout of that mm. incident, but there's um, more happening. Yes, yeah, so one of the more um, more interesting things that has happened, if it wasn't reported earlier, um, is um, basically Theresa May has kind of conceded almost to these demands of um, that Corbyn was pushing forward to give the luck give luxury so those luxury apartments to the people who yeah, made homeless in the yeah, fire. Yeah, to the made homeless yeah. in the fire. And the backlash has been quite interesting. Um with a lot Where of we Where did you find that? Um with all the kind of rich people going on, Oh we worked hard for our luxury apartments. Why really? do these well, it's so unfair <laughs> that these How amusing the um which is you know, just tell says everything about, you know, how they sing. Um, but I guess another more interesting thing is... They don't have any concept of work. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, Theresa May Some is way. actually in the process of forming a government, um, although I couldn't even really summarise this accurately, what's actually happening. No, she doesn't have a valid government because the the, the ceremony that um, I was uh, watching on TV yesterday, the Queen didn't wear a crown and, and, and apparently the formality was played very much down mm. and um, it... it Seems like they are still hoping that they will form a government, the Tories. Mm. But the, conclu- the the negotiations with the DUP haven't been concluded. Yeah, that's some um, basically the situation. However, I would be cautious of saying, "Oh, yeah, this is how Corbyn's going to get." Corbyn has an opening to basically seize power. But I, I would actually argue that that wouldn't be um, so clear because the DUP, are, you know, they may not want to form a coalition with the the Tory government at this point, they are completely united in m- ensuring that Corbyn does not become Prime oh, Minister. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so it's going to have to be, the government has to um, has to be so state, un- I think the, what is the likely outcome is the government's clearly unstable. Um, it's going to be so unstable that, you know, it could lead to another election. Or but the, the interesting thing is, Jacob, is that, you know, even though, um, the the coalition that Theresa May is trying to form is labelled as unstable. Um, the reality is Corbyn hasn't won uh, that much either. Like you know, if he has to form a, co- a coalition, he'll have more than three people in there because uh, the Labour Party won. But you know, like 
261 seats. So it has, uh, so you've got another 30, 40 seats that it's got, it's got to get hold of to form a government, and that means having more partners mm. yeah, in the coalition. That's why, um, that's why I would argue that, um, um, that, you know, Corbyn, because there's that possibility that Corbyn could just say, for example, Theresa May does the Queen's speech, it didn't pass, and then Corbyn does his own Queen's speech, and then it passes and he forms government. He would be still in a very weakened position. It's actually mm. better off that he hold the, he's actually in the best possible position he can be, um, because the implications is if there's another election cord, um, the polls suggest that Corbyn could easily win a majority, and I think that would be the best case you scenario. You trust the polls after the last election? Well, um, the <laughs> polls are actually reasonably accurate, actually. Yeah, um, coming through. The exit polls are, but the fact remains that unless there's another round of elections for people to give one party a clear mandate, mm. either the... Whether the Labour Party forms a government or the Tory form a government, it will be unstable simply because of the the sort of people who will be put together in the coalition. There are mm. a lot of animosity towards um, Corbyn as an individual. Mm. Um, a lot of it, he, as we know, his own pa- party MPs don't like him. So the undermining will be enormous. Mm. So it will be interesting. But anyway. Yeah. I think just one last point to make there is um, what would be um, what's interesting is that Corbyn is doing actually all the right things strategically. So in far, fact, he, yeah. they're already they're already in permanent campaign mode. They're already targeting all the seats that are marginal. That because basically, um, the election results were so um, seats certain seats were so close. Like basically, Labor lost like five over by five hundred votes in certain seats, and so they're going to target those seats to ensure that they win a majority. Um, in the event that a other election is scored. Hmm. So, you know, the, the fact is his um, program, which is uh, called a socialist program in a sense, um, has won enormous um, popularity among the people of the UK. So we'll have to just wait and watch because the situation is very fluid. But he certainly gives hopes to a lot of people's um, hopes, I guess. You know, they... they uh, really want a government the, that is concerned about the people and not about business uh, and giving business big concessions, as has been happening. Also, what people perhaps would have heard in, in previous programs is that London is actually one of the um, safe havens for capital. It's become another Cayman Island for lots of business. So the fight back for Corbyn is going to be uh, quite an uphill battle. But anyway... Um, just another reminder for listeners, uh, the Radiothon is still on, and we will be grateful for donations. Where you meant to be, a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon, put on by the Sewer Show crew. Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland, drinking in the roots of all folk tunes, featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart. Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. On Friday the 30th of June at 7pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. That is one way of donating to the um, uh, the Radiothon at 3CR. And if you want to keep the station uh, in the air and keep it going and allow... Uh, people to have an alternative voice in the community. The community alone can support this uh, radio. So please donate. Um, you've got to call 9419 8377 
or you can donate online 3cr.org.au slash donate. Okay, so I just wanted to have a look at um, this interesting article which hasn't been highlighted. Uh, Palashank hangs gay men charged with sodomy out to dry. So it seems like the the shine has rubbed off the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palashank's apology to those men charged with historic gay sex offences delivered in May. And um, she was hoping to score points by introducing a historical homosexual conviction expungement bill, which is now before the parliamentary committee, but it looks like she has struck out, apparently. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, So the bill... um, speaks to the state's history of systemic homophobia and homosexuality has or was a criminal offence in Queensland until 1991. Gay men were arrested and um, on a slew of uh, derogatory charges such as sodomy, indecency and unnatural offences. So the laws which were to... were which were in place for almost a century saw more than 450 people charged is absolutely homophobic, really. I mean, it's just, I, I can't think of any other word to describe it. It's, it's cruel. So, under the expungement bill, those charges were supposed to be thrown out. Uh, those changes were supposed to be made to make it, um, you know, um, non-criminal, so to speak. But the announcement comes after the notorious gay panic uh, defense which allowed the perpetrators of homophobic hate crimes to plead to a lesser crime and was finally abolished in Queensland in March. But Queensland also um, last, was the last Australian jurisdiction to equalize its age of consent laws. Until last year, anal sex was an arrestable offense until a person was 18 years old. And now the um, while the um, vaginal sex uh, consent for vaginal sex is 16. So there's a lot of issues here that need to be clarified and decriminalized. So this month, the Queensland government is expecting to review the funding of the Safe Schools Anti-Bullying Program. LGBTQI kids need safe schools to combat society's homophobic ideas and those peddled by their state government, which um, seems to which seeps into the playgrounds. And this whole issue has to be resolved um, in a way that's educational, that is uh, supportive of people who have um, different opinions and different um, sexual orientation. So this is quite a challenge for the conservative or traditionally conservative um, Queensland government, starting from the Joby Alcipitasan days. So it's got a long history to get over I guess so the article is, it's um, in more detail in the in the paper um, so the other one news I want to get over and talk about is the mining interests and the native title issue um, so when while we're celebrating the 25 years after marble the um, Land title, native land t- title amendment bill of 2017 quietly passed the Senate on, on the 14th of June with the only opposition coming from the Greens. Um, so the celebration was a bit of, uh, got a bit of a dampener. So the amend, amending legislation effectively negates the federal court ruling of February 2nd that all native title claims had to sign off 
on Indigenous Land Use Agreement for it to be registered. So it's a bit of a blackmail, really, or not a bit. It's a big blackmail. So the amendments have been touted as Adani amendments as they enable registration of the um, Indigenous Land Use Agreements, ILUA, uh, currently negotiated by the Adani covering um, the Carmichael Mine, Queensland. So it literally based on Adani's venture to start this this mine. So it's the 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 implications are fine and very deep. So the ILUA secured majority, but not consensus gov, um, agreement. So this has been passed quietly, and no media has covered it at all. The spokesperson for the Wangan and um, Jagalinga W and J Traditional Owner Council, Adrian Barangaba said, the registration of Adani's sham land use agreement is not being held up because of the decision in Western Australia in February. It's being challenged by us because it was engineered through rent-a-crowd deceit and dishonest tactics. We will continue continue our action in the federal court to have it struck out, regardless of what dodgy deals are tried in the Canberra in Canberra to prevent justice. So there's a huge battle. Um, certainly needs a lot of publicity. So Aboriginal land rights are being undermined uh, because of Adani. So Adani is actually getting his claws into traditional land um, unbeknown to people because the media is not giving it the aid it deserves. So that's a, a fight that's worth certainly worth supporting. Um, so we'll see what comes out of that once it goes to the, uh, the federal courts. So, time for another quick break before we go on to announcements. Three songs for 3CR, a fabulous fundraiser for Music Sans Frontières with songs from Scandinavia, Serbia, Georgia, Ireland and the globe. 8pm, Saturday the 1st of July, 1 Mark Street, North Fitzroy. Don't miss it. To book, www.boite.com.au. The Boite, a 3CR supporter. Are you interested in philanthropy? Do you want to be a major philanthropist? Well, I can help you. Donate to the 3CR Radio Fund. Get a legal, legitimate tax deduction by listening to your favourite radical program on Community Radio 3CR. Ring now, 94198377. Tell your friends, tell your rich and powerful friends, you too are a rich and powerful philanthropist. Ring now, 94198377. Don't use the telephone. A bit passe. Well, go to 3cr.org.au. This is your chance to keep 3CR on air and get a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Donate now. Yarra Council presents the 5th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017. 
opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghosts Reformation Show. For participating venues and tickets go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com 3CR supporter Are you interested in philanthropy? Do you want to be a major philanthropist? Well, I can help you. Donate to the 3CR Radio Fund. Get a legal, legitimate tax deduction by listening to your favourite radical program on Community Radio 3CR. Ring now, 94198377. Tell your friends, tell your rich and powerful friends, you too are a rich and powerful philanthropist. Ring now, 94198377. Don't use the telephone. A bit passe. Well, go to 3cr.org.au. This is your chance to keep 3CR on air and get a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Donate now. And welcome back to 3CI 855 on your AM dial. Of course, you're listening to Green Lafro Radio. Um, now, we have another interview coming up afterwards, but now it's time for announcements. There are not a huge one of things happening at this stage, but um, on um, the 30th of June, which is next Friday, we're having a conference about Rojava Revolution, which is actually um, a canton or state, if you like, in the north of Syria. And um, we, have, uh, we have been talking about this for a few weeks now. It's one of the prime examples of where feminism is successfully marching ahead. And it'll be really interesting because this conference is, um, starts on the Friday evening uh, and goes through all of Saturday. So explaining, exploring Rojava's experiment in radical democracy, uh, feminism, because um, as, as some of you may know, the army is made of male and female soldiers separately, uh, known as the YPG and YPJ, and they have actively um, defended um, the revolu- Rojava revolution or the North Syrian uh, canton um, throughout this period. And they also have joined in to fight against ISIS. So very brave women. And I remember distinctly talking to um, some women and said, look, why is it women actually need to go to war? Uh, why do they have to join and be violent? And one of the answers that, that uh, the um, uh, Kurdish woman gave me was, you know what? It's better to fight and die than to be raped. And that really stuck a chord with me. So this is going to be a very interesting conference for those who are keen to know more about the feminist uh, advances made in this canton. So it's being held at um, the Victoria University. It's at the corner of Flinders Street and it's a Flinders Street campus, sorry. It's in the city, uh, Victoria University, Flinders Street campus. Um, the program's um, at australianforkurdistan.org can also the program can be found at that website. That is 
Kurdistan, Australians for Kurdistan, one word, dot org. So do come and enjoy the successes. It's, it's very hard to get good news. And this is one of the little bit of uh, good news you can uh, like Corbyn. It's Corbyn's victory in, in the UK. This is a positive move to um, empower the people and get some victories. That's the 30th of June, which is the next um, Friday evening through to um, the Saturday. Okay, um, Friday, 18th of August, there's a conference called Radical Ideas. Um, it's education, discussion, and debate for radicals. Tickets at the Radical Ideas Conference, one word again. That is Radical Ideas Conference, one word, dot com. It's organized by the Resistance Young Socialist Alliance, and it's being held at the ETU building, 200 Arden Street, North Melbourne. So that should be um, an exciting conference with young people discussing the future, um, what is it they see they want for the future, what's happening now, and how to achieve the things they want to achieve. So that should be an interesting one to go to. A little bit of energy that will be around. Okay, move on to the regular meetings that are being held. Uh, Friends of the Earth and Earth's Anti-Nuclear and Clean Energy Collective meets every second Tuesday. Uh, the office at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. And email is ace at 4.org.au. Uh, the Australian for Kurdistan meeting first Thursday of each month, uh, and you can phone Gule, Gule 0413-936-706 or Aaron at 0410-197-814. The other organization that meets is Climate Action Moreland, and that meets regularly uh, to develop action on climate change in Moreland's area. Fawn Andrea, who we interviewed earlier, by the way, on the Finkel Report, um, she's um, organizing that group, um, 0424-508-535. The number, once again, 0424-508-535. Now, another organization which has been meeting for some time now is the Australian West Papua Association, Struggles Against Indonesia, the Indonesian occupation of West Papua. Phone 95102193. Now, of course, the West Papuan Association has an office in um, Docklands, and they have a program where they call for people to pay a dollar a day to keep, keep their office, which they call the, the Foreign Affairs Office. Um, and Jacob uh, Rubiak is the foreign minister there. And he has made some big strides in working with um, the Pacific groups. And also he went to um, the Caribbean recently to make some gains. So we'll have to interview them recent, uh, soon to catch up with what's happening there. So if you're interested in the West Papuan issues, that's the phone number to ring. And it is 95102193. Okay, that's uh, a short list this week. Um, and, of course, we still have to move with the 3CR Radiothon. Um, we are aiming to um, get $220,000 for this year's Radiothon to keep the radio on air. It's been on air for 40 years now. 
So we are hoping that you'll be able to um, donate to keep the station running. Um, and it's not a huge amount to aim for and to keep a station running. So if you have $2 or more that you want to donate, please call in or drop in um, to talk to staff here, and you can always donate Sunsmith Street. Um, and will be greatly received any amount that people can afford. Uh, if you like what you've heard today on this morning's program, uh, please donate to this program, Green Left Weekly Radio, of course. Um, and all donations are greatly received. Let's have a quick announcement. Then we go to the next interview with Sue Bolton about the housing crisis, which is apparently getting worse. Yarra Council presents the fifth annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017, opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghosts Reformation Show. For participating menus and tickets go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com 3CR supporter. I'm Tash Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. VCR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves, in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Okay, welcome back to 3CR listeners. And we have Sue Bolton, the councillor for Moorland Online. And the topic we want to discuss today about the housing crisis that is getting worse. Uh, Good morning, Sue. Hi, Lally. How's it going? Good. Welcome to 3CR. And uh, Sue is one of our regular uh, contributors and uh, interviews um, about lots of issues uh, on the ground. So the latest housing issue is about um, the selling off of some high-rise um, public housing properties. So tell us more about what the plan is by the state government. Or is it the – yes, it is the state government that's in charge of this plan, isn't it? Yes, it is the state government. I mean, it is a policy which has been following, which has been followed all around the country, um, and the preparation for some of this dates all the way back to the Hawke and Keating government of the early 90s. Um, but this current plan is for the state government to give the land that around eight or nine um, public housing estates are sitting on to redevelop it for 
social and private housing. So there's about eight um, different estates, um, including I think a couple in Northcote. There's one I think in uh, Preston. I think Heidelberg Heights. There's Ascot Vale. There's West Brunswick and, and some others. And basically, the developers will be in charge of the redevelopment. And at the moment, these housing estates, most of them or all of them, they're walk-ups. So they're only about three storeys high. Um, in the case of the West Brunswick one, and I think a no- number of them, um, it's in a residential sort of growth zone, which basically means uh, developers can put higher levels of housing on them. Uh, but there's no guarantee that... the public housing tenants in those estates will be allowed to return. Um, The developers will be allowed to change the bedroom configuration and which may make uh, a whole lot of public housing tenants who currently live there, some who've lived there for 20 plus years, that's their long-term home, will make it impossible for them to return. And then they'll also be able to put in um, private dwellings on what is 100% publicly owned land at the moment and uh, and they'll be allowed to sort of... Um, the um, juice for the uh, private developers is they'll be able to turn three-storey buildings into nine, ten or more storey buildings. The Department of Health and Human Services is saying to tenants and councils, et cetera, that oh, 80% of people choose not to come back, as in public housing tenants, choose not to come, not to return. Uh, but if it's like the West Brunswick estate, currently almost all those units are three-bedroom units for families. Um, the developer will convert almost all of them to one- and two-bedroom units. So that's why people supposedly voluntarily choose not to return. So really they're forced forced to... The other sneaky thing is that there's no guarantee that this will be public housing when Mm. people are allowed to return because it may be converted into community housing uh, which means that people will have to pay more rent and also community housing doesn't necessarily accept very many tenants who are on um, government benefits and so that might be another reason a lot of people won't be allowed to return. So this means that more people will actually become homeless? Well, they say not necessarily. Um, I think there's a lot of question marks because the government will, in order to do the redevelopment, they will find places for people to live Uh, but of course there's a lack of public housing dwellings as everybody knows and so they're saying that some people they will fund to be in private uh, rental if they can't find any public housing uh, public housing um, rentals for people Uh, but the question is especially for those who end up in subsidised private housing, what's going to happen when the redevelopment is completed if 
the development has changed so that they're not able to, re, uh, to return. And I believe from Friends of Public Housing, when the first one of these redevelopments happened in Kensington, hardly anyone was allowed to return. So then when they did the Carlton, Rathdown Street Carlton redevelopment, um, people, some people at least, knew about what had happened in Kensington, so they fought really hard to return. But there were still a lot of people who weren't allowed to return, but more people managed to get back. Um, and, you know, there's been a scandal with the Rathdown Street one because, you know, the developer and it'll be probably the same with these current redevelopments, put up a wall between the private tenants and the public tenants. And um, and so there's certain garden areas that only the private owners or, or tenants are allowed access to that the public tenants are not allowed access to. And this was all public... Um, these were all, you know, this was all public tenants. Uh, tenanted um, buildings like this is a, it's a total scandal and I, I think this is also a real um, handout to private developers and for the first time at least in the age there was an article last Saturday which is starting to really examine all of this because in the past none of this has been examined it's just been a truism that public private tenant you know needs to be mixed, etc. Well, actually, no, it doesn't. We need public housing. Um, there's plenty of private housing, but we need public housing. Mm. So the <clears throat> it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to think that the hu- there's a huge crisis in housing. You start from people who can't afford to buy houses because it's too expensive, and then you go to the rents being extremely high, so people actually... Uh, are homeless because they can't afford to buy um, to rent, and then now you have got public housing being destroyed. So the the whole picture paints painted to me is that this government is bent on making people homeless. That that's the only message I can take from it because their policies encourage rich people to own more more homes and drive poor people out of any housing, while there's a huge outcry not just statewide but nationwide about how poor the housing situation is for people. Um, even if you leave out the the first time home buyers who have enough money and maybe eventually may be able to get a house, and and that's still not good enough. But you also have um, an increase in homeless population in the city and the criminalization of homelessness uh, was uh, quite clear a few, maybe a month and a half ago when the mayor of uh, Melbourne, Doyle, um, removed people from the Flinders administration. So the whole picture I, I'm getting, or it's, it's being not necessarily uh, seen in, in the media, is that people are being deliberately made homeless that that's the, the the message I'm getting. Um, so, it's it's what what are the policies that are promoting this? I mean, the the local councils have do they have a role in this? Because Doyle obviously intervened in this issue, and then you have the state government that's making all these moves to to punish poor people for being homeless or, or driving people to um, become homeless. It doesn't make sense. Well, I think if you're a neoliberal privatising maniac, it makes sense. Yes, uh, I'm from sure. From the point of view of 
what's in the in in people's social interest uh, this doesn't make sense and this is uh part of the long-term trend in australia and around the world of privatizing our social services and australia is following the um following what's happened in britain um and so basically in britain They've been uh, privatising council housing uh, over a long, over a period of time, and transferring. And the way they've done it is by transferring a lot of council housing to supposedly social housing, housing associations, and that's what's been happening in Australia. In and I believe Victoria is further advanced, like Australia, like Victoria's privatised privatisation program under Kennett was much further advanced than the other states, mm. unfortunately. Something for us not to be proud of. Um, and so what they've been doing... In, so what's happened is under Liberal governments have just been selling, selling things off and demolishing things, just selling things straight off, the big chop. Under Labor, they've been doing a more sneaky form of privatisation. And so they use the term... They use terms like social housing and affordable housing. They say, oh, we're providing all this social housing and affordable housing. You have to look at what they mean by that. So most people who are not connected to the area assume, oh, that sounds good, um, good, they're providing affordable housing or, or social housing. The problem is that with uh, when they talk about social housing... So deliberately, um, a term that's used to deliberately obfuscate things. Mm. So social housing is defined to mean both public housing and housing association provided housing. So it deliberately confuses things. Um, and so what the Labor governments in Victoria have been doing, starting under the Brumby government, is transferring all of this public housing to the so-called not-for-profit housing association. Yes. And a lot, of, some of them, especially the bigger ones, they operate just like private real estate agents, in the sense that um, you, you know, you know, they're quick to evict um, if you haven't paid your rent. But also, they prefer because it's on a capital accumulation model, they prefer tenants who can pay market rate. Mm or a little bit below market rate. So they house a very few people on New Start. They don't really house anyone on youth allowance unless it's a young person who gets some sort of disability allowance on top. They basically um, house very few vulnerable people. Yep. And so this is the sneaky form of privatisation, which I think is also going to happen with this lot of new redevelopments. And the other thing they've done is they've redefined affordable housing. So every time they use that term, you have to prick up your ears and quiz what they mean by it. Because over the years, they've kept redefining it. it used to be 20% of your income in rent. Yes. Then it was 25% mm. of your income in rent, which is what public housing tenants pay. Yep. Then it's now it's been redefined as 30% of your income in rent. Well, 30% of your income in rent if you're on New Start or Youth Allowance or even probably minimum wage, is unaffordable. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of sneaky stuff going on. Yep.
Yep. Okay. Um, time's rolling on. I just wanted, so there's obviously a campaign started and I believe you have, um, organized a public meeting and other councillors also doing similar things. I wonder if you could give us some insight into all the campaigns and meetings that are being organized to fight this. Yes. So I've, um, been door knocking on the Brunswick West estate with friends of public housing. Um, and, and certainly you get the feeling that a lot of people have been there a long time and don't want to move. Um, there's going to be a public meeting uh, in the senior, Richard Lynch Senior Citizens Centre on uh, the 15th of July, Saturday the 15th of July at 2pm. Um, we'll have some leaflets ready in time for a, a public rally which has been called by Socialist Councillor Steve Jolly in Northcote on Saturday at 1pm. Um, so those are the first two public um, protest activities around these plans. Uh, but there are also plans uh, to door knock other estates. Um, so there are a few activists who are informally working together at this stage to try and door knock the various estates and get a sense of whether people are wanting to fight these redevelopments and work out what we want to demand. Okay, very quickly, um, you mentioned the meeting. The one in Moreland, what street is it on? It's 27 Peacock Street, which comes off Albion Street. And when is it? It's Saturday the 15th of July at 2pm. Okay, 2pm. And the one in Northcote? Now, that is this Saturday at 1pm, and it's at the basketball courts on the um, on the Northcote estate. I'm just uh, quickly looking for the actual street address. If you oh, bear yeah, with sure, me sure. two ticks, I won't be very long. Uh, okay, here we go. So Northcote estate, basketball court, one high street. Street, Northcote. Okay, sounds good. Okay, thank you very much, Sue. And it looks like it's a very, very important campaign for um, everybody to get involved in. Um, if they don't want homeless people sleeping on the front yard, they better do something about it, really. There's a great motivation there for people, um, putting aside the humanitarian issue and the appalling policies of the Liberal Labour government in relation to the poor people and the homeless people. So thanks for being available, Sue, and we shall um, announce this again, uh, the one at least for the 15th, um, in more on the meeting, and hopefully more people will join your campaign. Thank you very much. Thanks, sir. Bye. Bye. Okay, we have come to the end of the program. And let us thank um, Dr. Andrea Bunting, who spoke on the um, Alan Finkel report and gave us an assessment of um, the direction and the recommendations. Um, of course, uh, Sue Bolton, who is a councillor in Moreland in relation to housing. And Jacob has come and gone quickly. He's had... Um, his work organized around it, so it's a bit tricky for him. But thank you to mostly the listeners, and of course, another reminder we are still in the period of Radiothon. Um, we encourage everyone to try and support us uh, in keeping the um, alternative point of view alive and moving forward. We need your support. Um, any uh, donation 
above two dollars is um, uh, tax deductible. So you're welcome to ring nine four one nine eight three double seven. Uh, or get online, uh, 3cr.org.au.donate. I hope you enjoyed the program. And as you know, it's available on the web and there's also podcasts, um, anytime for you to listen to. Um, have a good day. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.